For October 14th, 2015, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. Today we're discussing Germany's energy transition plan, known in German as the Energiewende, and we'll be speaking with Craig Morris, the editor of Renewables International and the lead author of the excellent and data-filled energy transition website in Germany. We'll link to those in the show notes. Craig was raised in the U.S. but has been living in Germany since 1992, and is my favorite English language writer on the Energiewende, not only because it's in English, but also because he consistently gets the data right. For the past several years, as Germany's energy transition made headlines for its rapid adoption of solar and wind power and its phase-out of nuclear power, which is now being followed by a phase-out of coal, defenders of the conventional power status quo have conducted a vigorous disinformation campaign in the pages of many of the world's top publications, seeking to paint the Energiewende as a failure, an unfair tax on the poor, a risky bet that could lead to blackouts, the main cause of Germany's high retail power prices, an exchange of low-carbon nuclear for high-carbon coal, and lots of other horrible things. But none of these accusations have been true, and Craig Morris has consistently and promptly busted them in the pages of Renewables International with up-to-date data drawn from sources that are often only published in German, and with clear-eyed, rational, non-ideological explanations of what's really happening there. Germany is the world leader in installed solar capacity at roughly 38 gigawatts, the third largest producer of solar electricity at 5.7% of generation, and the fifth largest producer of non-hydro electricity at 23%. Overall, Germany is now getting close to 30% of its power from all renewable sources. But more importantly, Germany's solar output meets more than half of the country's peak summertime demand. This has shaved off the peaks of Germany's most expensive conventional power generation, which has started to drive down power prices across the board. None of this was accidental. Years ago, Germany developed a comprehensive energy transition plan and has executed that plan deliberately. Some observers, including me, credit Germany with being the main force that drove down solar prices globally after implementing its feed-in tariff, or FIT, in April 2000, making it the first major program of its kind in the world. Within five years of introducing the FIT, Germany had captured half the world market for solar modules and helped to kick off a solar manufacturing boom worldwide, especially in China. While some climate concernists have criticized Germany's decision to phase out low-carbon nuclear power first, that was the decision that Germany's people made, and they've been carrying out that plan. And fortunately, they're now using renewables to push coal off the grid as well. One only wishes that other countries, like the U.S., could actually formulate an energy transition plan and execute on it the way that Germany has. 
In 2013, I interviewed Craig for an article titled Myth-Busting Germany's Energy Transition, which we'll link to in the show notes, which covered a short list of the major criticisms that had been leveled at the energy venda up until that time. But rather than revisiting those points today, I want to discuss Germany's recent progress and in particular how it is coping with the increasing influx of renewable power on its grid. So let's bring Craig into the conversation here and find out what's new. Welcome, Craig, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for having me. What's Germany's long-term goal for the Energiewende? If you put it into a percentage, we're talking about 60% renewable energy by 2050. And of course, when I say energy, I do mean not only electricity, but also heat and transport fuels, motor fuels. And that is only considered possible here with a 50% reduction in energy consumption. Now, are they expecting to accomplish that through efficiency or what? Well, efficiency is going to play a big part, but part of it is also just a numbers game, really. I recently explained this in a blog post. I believe it was entitled The Magic of Efficiency. And I was essentially arguing that there is no magic. We don't need any kind of big breakthrough for efficiency. Right now, when we talk about reducing energy consumption, we're counting primary energy. So the lump of coal that goes into the coal plant. And because wind and solar don't have a difference between primary and final energy, at least in the way that the IEA counts it, we have the same number there. So we're switching from a high number for primary energy to a a lower number for final energy with the same amount of energy for renewables. Got it. Yeah, yeah. And so this is really just a matter of, you know, when you have a wind turbine, you don't count the wind that is lost in the process. Right. You you just say you got a certain number of kilowatt hours. And the same thing with a solar panel. You don't say we lost this much sunlight. But with coal plants, you say, okay, we put three lumps of coal in and got one lump of electricity out. And that's a 33% efficient coal plant. Right. And so part of that, one big chunk of this reduction in energy consumption is just going to be that conversion from coal to, to solar and, and, of course, also oil and cars when we switch over to electricity there. The other big pillar is going to be efficiency as we properly understand it, and that will largely come from the building sector. Now, the, the energy sort of consumption mix in Germany is a bit different than it is in the States. In the U.S., I believe it's about 40% electricity. In Germany, it's 20% electricity around 40% heat, and around 40% motor fuels. And so we're doing a lot with electricity right now, but the real progress has to come from what we're not doing. And that's the biggest point of criticism, one of the biggest about the energy transition. But the efficiency thing that's going to come is with passive house architecture. And that's just going to be a very slow process. We have the technology now. We've had it since the 1990s. We know that it works. And it's going to become the building standard throughout Europe, in fact, more or less with the requirements for what the EU calls nearly zero energy buildings. So by the early 2020s, new buildings will have to more or less comply with the passive house standard. And just very briefly to explain what that is, you're going from a new building in Germany today will consume about four times more energy for heating than a passive house will. And of course, older buildings will actually consume something like 20 times more, like a building from maybe 1975. Right. Interesting. Now, you and Arne Jungjohan, your 
partner in crime over there, have been working on a book about the history of Germany's energy transition. Why did you decide to write that book? What's its title and when will it be out? That's a good question. We assume that the publisher is going to tell us what the title is. It is just an Energiewende history. And the reason we decided to write it was because this is often talked about among the energy geeks. And actually, there's a bigger story here. The movement, the term itself goes back to the 1970s. And you could arguably take it back to a single thing that happened in 1974 that started in 1974 when a village outside of Freiburg, Germany, where I've been living since 1992, protested against plans to construct a nuclear plant. And now looking back from today, we would say, okay, the Germans, they oppose nuclear, this makes sense, and what's the big story here? Actually, if you tell the tale from back then, looking from the 60s and from the early 70s, not knowing where this is leading, the whole history starts to look much broader and richer than just the Germans don't like nuclear power. Right. It was essentially, they not only wanted a nuclear plant, but they wanted a lead production plant next door. And the locals were told, we're going to industrialize this area and this will be good for you. And this is quite similar to what you have right now in the States with some of the conservative communities opposing fracking where they are turning around like the Germans did in specifically in, in 1974 in this farming village. These people, conservatives, stood up and told their government, their conservative government, we don't want this. We are a farming community. We don't want to be industrialized. We have a beautiful orchards here. We have vineyards. It's a, it's a wonderful place to live. And you're going to come in here and industrialize everything and old 60-year-old farmers went out and put their bodies on the line, and the police came in and laughed at them and, and you know, refused to, to pick them up because you push around the elderly and they can get hurt. And so that was the way this, this started. They weren't concerned about radioactivity. In fact, what we found is it's very clearly documented. These people, these rural farmers, did not know what radioactivity was. They learned it by the end of the 70s. They learned it a little bit when Three Mile Island happened in the late 70s, and then, of course, when Chernobyl happened in 86. So by the time Chernobyl happens, radioactivity is definitely in the foreground. That's definitely the problem that Germans have with nuclear power at that time. But in the beginning, it was really rural conservative communities who did not want the government to push them around, and they didn't want firms that were too big to fail coming in and taking profits out of the local community, out of the resources, and the locals don't get the profits, but they have to live with the impacts. Germany has been shutting down a lot of its conventional power plants in recent years, including 10 nuclear plants with, I think, another nine yet to go, that have been completely replaced by renewable power. And it now has a list of 57 conventional plants, according to your recent article, with a total capacity of 9.2 gigawatts, or about 10% of total installed conventional capacity that it wants to close. So first, just for the amusement of our non-German-speaking listeners, what is the name of that list in German? The KWSAL? Yes. What does it stand for? The Kraftwerksanzeigenliste? I'd have to look it up again, but it's a whole sentence packed into a word. Yes, yes one of those famous German train car constructions. Yes. <laughs> so why are these plants being considered for closure? Well, let me go back to one formulation that you use when you say Germany is planning to close. And, you know, I probably use this as well. But let's just make a clear distinction here. Germany 
doesn't plan to do anything. These are private firms on the market. We have competition on the electricity sector over here in a way that you don't have in most parts of the United States. And so these firms are essentially telling the national grid regulator, it's called the network agency, they're telling the network agency, okay, at the prices that we could get and the hours that we could run, we are not profitable. We're going to be running at a loss. So we want to close our plants, these particular plants. Okay. So this is private industry telling the grid operator, we're going to close these plants, not the other way around. We would like to close these plants because they're unprofitable. Mm -hmm. And the process is that the network agency then goes in and says, all right, let's review the grid situation where you are, where this plant is, and we will let you know whether we feel that at that particular grid node or grid area, whether we can let you close or not. If the network agency tells the plant operator, sorry, we need you, you can't close, then some kind of compensation has to be arranged. And the funny thing is that these payments do not seem to be, at least I do not know where they are spelled out very clearly. It seems that all indications are that they are insufficient at the moment. So there's a press release by Eon where they say even with whatever payments will be made, even if we get those, we would still be running at a loss. And I think the idea originally was that you might need a couple of plants, but not 10% of the generation capacity. And so probably the entire thing is being revisited. And that may be why we don't see the payments listed out anywhere. But it's a kind of capacity market that is sort of sneaking in hmm. to the German power sector, which is kind of ironic because the government specifically and, and explicitly opposes the idea. They've come out very strongly and clearly against the idea this year. It was debated very heavily in 2013-2014, and then sort of in January, February this year, the government said, okay, we're not going to do it. We will revisit it in 2017, but we're not going to do it until then. And so we're kind of in a limbo phase right now where these firms are trying to keep their plants online but receive some kind of compensation for it outside of what's called the energy-only wholesale market. Right, where wholesale power prices are now at or below four cents a kilowatt hour. So you can imagine why those existing plants would have a hard time making a profit. Right. I recently saw an estimate, just to give you an idea, a nuclear plant, you know, an old nuclear plant, can run at a marginal cost of 2.5 cents, but, so that would still be profitable even at three cents, but the government, as part of the deal from 2010, decided to impose a tax on fuel rods. And that adds 1.4 cents to the kilowatt hour. So a nuclear plant in Germany now needs 3.9 cents just to break even. And coal plants, we have very cheap lignite over here. This is a, a kind of coal that you don't really use much in the States because we have a better quality in the States. You know, we have actual coal that looks like a rock. They have coal over here that looks like a, a dead tree and it's full of water and it has to be pre-baked and you have to really dry it before you can even put it into the plant. But we have tons of it over here and it's dirt cheap because it's just dirt that catches fire. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually one level up from peat 
is essentially what it is. Right, exactly. So it's somewhere in between peat and the kind of rock coal that we're used to thinking of. Yeah. And so that's very cheap. The other thing is that natural gas over here is relatively expensive. And Europe is extremely well networked with natural gas. So you have these really low prices in the fracking boom in the States. But that was partly because there was a surplus in certain areas and you couldn't get it to California because you don't have a nationwide gas network. Right. If somebody over in Europe decided to frack and we had 50% more gas all of a sudden, prices might not even budge because we can trade over here. I know that we trade with North Africa. We get a lot of our gas from North Africa, but it goes from North Africa to Russia. Right. So we're just in the middle of this gigantic gas network that's built up over here. So the kind of price fluctuations that you saw in the States simply would not be possible over here. So gas is expensive and would remain expensive. Yeah, that's a really interesting point to make. I think unless you really know the topology of the gas network over there, it's sort of hard to imagine how how and why gas prices have stayed so high, while, especially while they've been so low over here. So with all these power plants being closed, I mean, obviously the grid operator is becoming concerned about it. Are they worried about the reserve margin falling to a too low a level? And how do they intend to deal with that? Well, it's not just the network agency that's worried about that. The whole sector is basically facing a situation right now where investments in new plants seem nonsensical. It just seems like a bad idea. And, you know, you're going to have closures and then a lack of replacements. And so your overall installed dispatchable capacity, the secure capacity, is going to diminish. And since Germany is largely going renewable with wind and solar, we won't have more things that we can actually switch on. So we have hydro, but the level of hydropower we have now is hardly unchanged since 1990, and it won't change in the future much. Biomass went up considerably in the power sector, but it's finished. We are practically building nothing now, and essentially society and the government, we've reached a point where we've decided over here in Germany that we've used most or all of the sort of you know, residue from the, the wood sector in the, in the larger sense of the term, there isn't any more residue left, and we don't want more energy crops. We have a lot of canola oil over here for diesel, and then we, we grow corn and take the entire plant before the fruit has even really formed, and we use the whole plant in biogas units for heat and electricity. But we've reached a point over here where we've decided that's enough, and anything else, you know, if we continue going this way, it's not going to be sustainable you're going to start cutting into unused land or you're going to take up farmland, which is going to increase food prices. And so biogas is over. We don't really have geothermal capacity to speak of for power generation. And what are we left with? We're left with wind and solar and you can't switch them on. So this discussion over here about the adequacy of dispatchable capacity going forwards, especially around the time we switch off our last, I think it's now eight nuclear plants. We closed one down this year. Okay. I believe it's eight now. I might be wrong about that. But we're going to close them down in 2021-22 at the end of 22. And so by that point, we will have roughly another 10% of, of our total generation capacity go offline. And you would want to replace that with something 
you know, that you can switch on or that runs more or less all the time. And that incidentally is also one of the reasons why Germany is really pushing for offshore wind. The capacity factors of offshore wind are up in the 40s over here, which is phenomenally good for Germany. Right. The onshore, the national fleet, this will be a number that anyone used to seeing the figures from America will just laugh at. The national German fleet of wind turbines has a capacity factor below 20%. Huh. So we're doubling the capacity factor just by putting the things in the water. Just by going offshore, yeah. Interesting. So the concern about the reserve margin is a real one that, that still has to be sorted out. The concern is real, but you know there is a debate about whether this is being overblown. You have a lot of proponents of renewables saying there are other options. We can start to use storage. We can do a lot of demand shifting, but there's certainly a discussion going on. And again, part of it is also related to particular parts of the grid. So I think most of the nuclear plants going off are in the south. And so there's a concern, particularly in southern Germany, and you probably, anybody who follows the, the reports on Germany is probably familiar with the debate we're having about power lines from the north to the south right. for offshore wind in particular. And that's also part of that because the nuclear plants will disappear in the south and we're building all this wind in the north. So the problem, if we continue to do that, is just going to increase. Unless you get on it and build that additional transmission capacity. Build the transmission capacity or do something radically different, which is not being proposed right now, which is in line with the original idea of the Energiewende, which is a kind of people taking it into their own hands. On the one hand, you have the grid experts and I am convinced, I've spoken to enough different people with enough different angles on it. I'm convinced that the people who have seen the data, nobody understands the data from the grid. That's the thing. Hmm. And so the people who have seen it long enough and studied it long enough to understand it, everybody says, yes, we need these power lines. And then there's kind of the community level that says, look, you're just taking the sector away from us. You're building these huge wind farms offshore, and it's the utilities that are doing it. And you're telling communities that they can't build anymore. You know, we've got something like 24,000 wind turbines over here. And only, I think, about, what is it, 5 or 7% have been built by the conventional utilities, like the big four, the big guys. Right. And so this has really been a community sort of grassroots movement to an extent that I think a lot of Americans just in the U.S. renewable sector probably would be surprised about. And these people are saying, let us build our own projects. And if we create too much wind in one place, let's look at this from the point of view of 2050 and count backwards and not do what you're doing and say, well, what's the next step that we need to take to fix the problem we have now, which maybe, you know, maybe one good idea then would be building grid lines. And they're saying, no, 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 count back from 2050. You want to take electricity and use it in the transport sector. You want to take electricity and store excess electricity as heat. We can do that, and we can start it on this kind of community level. So if our wind farm, if there's excess electricity and you want us to curtail power, then maybe we connect it to a community hot water storage facility with a district heat network. These things take time to build. A district heat network is a real community project. And so these things are things that we need for 2050, the big experts are not talking about them. They're talking about other things. And so we have a real clash of visions over here between the community people who have pushed this thing all along 
and the energy sector experts who have now discovered that they can't get around the Energiewende anymore, and so they're pushing their ideas in. Interesting, interesting. So this raises an important question about grid reliability. At times, Germany was able to accommodate a really high percentage of variable power from wind and solar on its grid, which critics had said was impossible and would lead to blackouts. Yet now Germany has the most reliable grid in Europe. So how have they pulled that off? Yeah, we had 12 minutes. I mean, it was astonishing. We've had 15 minutes of grid downtime a year since about 2006. I think it started off at about 20 minutes and then it went down for years to about 15 minutes. And then this year, the data just... 15 minutes over the course of a year. Yeah. And this is a particular metric called SADI, S-A-I-D-I. And it the power outage has to be three minutes long. Natural disasters are not counted. So if a blizzard comes in on, on New England and wipes you out for a week, you're still good as far as Sadie's concerned because that wasn't really the grid operator's fault. These right. have to be things that are, are somehow should be under the control of the technicians. How did Germany do it? We do have a, a sort of skyrocketing redispatches right now. So that's obviously one thing that the critics would point out. I do have an IT expert who works in the sort of grid sector and he believes, though, that a lot of the redispatches are, are based on price. So a utility that has several power plants might find a reason. You can't do this legally. You have to have a technical reason to, to have an unplanned outage. So they, he charges that the, the spike is at least partly due to some of these plant owners saying, okay, let's take out this plant and buy off the power exchange because it's gotten so cheap. And he's looking at the data trying to show that this happens too often at the same time that the prices go down and then suddenly all these coal plants fail. So he thinks there's actually a financial reason behind it. But otherwise, we really have not needed to completely redo the grid or anything. We're planning on building a couple of thousand lines of ultra high voltage lines, but we have tens of thousands. So it's actually a very small amount to be adding. All of this was built for the conventional sector. And so we built tens of thousands of lines to have these central coal plants and, and nuclear plants and gas turbines, and nobody really talked about it back then. But now we need to build a couple of thousand for renewables, and this is apparently some kind of a big issue. So I think other things that we do over here, we have quite a bit of underground cables, and that also tends to be more reliable. But there hasn't been anything done that's really unknown in the U.S. Well, isn't better forecasting, modeling of the weather and that kind of thing, an important part of keeping the grid reliable? Yeah, if we have that. I don't know too much about this, but I wrote about this a year or two ago. And I actually got a letter or an email from somebody who works on forecasting in Germany. And she said, you're off your rocker here. We're trying to learn from the states. And apparently... In the U.S., the forecasting for wind turbines, see, the thing is, it's not published in the States. Because it's the utility talking to the grid owner, and maybe that's the same company, and maybe the utilities involved in the wind farm, this is kind of shared data within a bigger sort of business entity, whereas in Germany, everything would have to be out in the open. Right. So it's sort of considered proprietary technology or proprietary data in the States. Proprietary data in the States, but because maybe it's proprietary, the Germans apparently look on what the U.S. has and thinks if we could only have that. And what you get over here is open and transparency and all that, but apparently it's not as good as what you're used to in the States. Now, that is 
a year or two old, but it was somebody who wrote to me from one of the forecasting groups over here and said, sorry, you just got that wrong. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I mean, I, I think most people, especially critics, look at the high percentage of renewables on the German grid and reliability going up and just saying, how is this possible? Especially when so much dispatchable power is going away. Yeah. One of the points of criticism that you often hear then, if they complete the sentence, they will say it's because they're dumping this on, on foreign countries. And the, the reality of it is power exports do increase when there are high shares of wind and solar. The signal that goes out is a price signal. It's not a signal where the grid is saying, okay, my Hertz frequency is messed up. Can you save me here? Hmm. It's just a price signal. So there's not a technical signal that goes out. It's, it's a market signal. Right. And the market signal is a factor not solely of the share of wind and solar. It is the combination of must-run capacity with wind and solar. So you have this spiky renewable electricity. And then you have this other stuff that's like a, a slab of concrete and doesn't want... The so-called baseload generation from these conventional plants. Right. It's not just the baseload, though. It's the must-run share of the baseload. So the baseload plants can also go down a little bit. But, you know, it's like when you start your car, if the thing's running at 800 RPM, which is, you know, what it's going to run at, if you want it for some reason for it to run at 600, the car just doesn't do that. Right. And it'll go up to 2,000 when you hit the gas. And so each type of power generation plant has its own level of must run capacity. And when you add up this share of baseload, and it's going to be lower than your actual baseload production, that's kind of the crunch point where the power plants say, look, I can't go down anymore. Unless I just turn off completely. Yes, but then you can't come back on right away necessarily. Exactly. exactly. So I'm glad you brought up this question of power exports because You've explained in several articles that a big part of the reason why Germany is burning more coal, or at least up until 2014 when that increase in coal consumption started to level out or fall, was because it was exporting so much power to neighboring countries. So how would the generation mix be different in Germany if it weren't exporting that coal-fired power? If Germany were an island? Yeah. If Germany couldn't export to other countries, the problems that we're going to have in 2020 or 2025, we would just be having them now. In fact, just this weekend, I wrote a piece this morning about August 23rd. We reached a share of renewables probably in the 80s, so around 82%, maybe even higher. On like an hourly or a daily basis? It was just for two hours. Okay. But again, this is the kind of spiky renewables that I'm talking about. Right. So solar's gone 12 hours a day, but then it comes in at a third of total demand or something, 40% or something like that for just two hours. And when we have a combination, and they're kind of rare, when we have a combination of a good level of wind and then a sunny day, then you end up with these really high shares of renewable electricity. Combine that with a Sunday when demand is low anyway, and you end up with a real predicament for the power sector or for conventional plants. And so we actually reached a level of exports on Sunday, August 23rd. It looks like 16 gigawatts. And I saw that number and I thought, wait a minute, I have to look up the interconnections here because I don't think we have 16 gigawatts of interconnections. And the funny thing was I wasn't able to find any data showing what exactly we have today. I found forecasts for 2024, and the last data I found was from 2011. 
And I wrote on my Renewables International, I said, if anybody has the data for 2014, please post it in here. And I haven't gotten anything. Hmm. But we must have been exporting at the max for several hours there. If we didn't have that, we would have to curtail renewables a lot more because we don't have the storage yet. So you would just lose renewable electricity. The proponents of renewables would then say, that's okay because it's not really losing anything. You're not losing a fossil fuel. You're not creating carbon emissions without getting anything out of it. You're just shutting off wind turbines and and shutting down inverters for solar arrays. At the same time, there's a financial problem behind it because the people who have invested in these things will still want to be paid. Sure. And if you have them curtailed at some point in the future, if it's 10% curtailment, are they just supposed to accept 10% payment losses? How is that supposed to work? Right. So this is a kind of an issue that hasn't been talked out completely. But we will have this anyway in 10 years. Right. Yeah. So the notion that for somebody who's casually observing this thing might say, well, if Germany wants to really cut back on its coal consumption, it could just clamp down on the power exports. But that's obviously not a real solution, given all the complexity that you're talking about of the pricing and the construction of the grid and so on. I mentioned playing with numbers at the beginning of the podcast in terms of efficiency. You could also play with the numbers here and say we're defining everything in terms of domestic consumption. And by German law, renewables have a priority on the grid. And so I've been waiting for the German government to come out and say, we are counting domestic consumption in the CO2. And there have been some kind of indications about a discussion like that instead of generation, Hmm. because generation would, of course, include all the exports. And by law, the exports are the residual load, which is fossil and nuclear. So we're not exporting, according to German law, we're not exporting renewables. The renewables have the right to be there by German law. Everything else would have to react to the renewables. And so the conventional power sectors lowering their prices when they hit the must-run level, you know, going into the negative, paying the French to take power off of them or whoever, the Dutch are big power buyers in Germany. And so that's what we're going to end up with. Wow. Interesting. Well, I'm glad this does ultimately come down to a question of price in a lot of ways. One of the most common criticisms about the transition is that it's been responsible for Germany's high retail power prices. And you've actually broken this down and written about it quite a bit. And it's a complicated question because as the chart that you've posted on the energy transition site shows, the renewable energy surcharge in Germany actually has six major components So in addition to the actual cost of renewable energy, there are these unfamiliar concepts like the underdraw from prior year, liquidity reserve, market bonus, industry exemptions, lower wholesale prices. All of this stuff is really sort of non-intuitive. So briefly for our listeners, can you explain why the cost of renewable energy isn't the main reason for Germany's higher power prices? Well, if we look at the retail rates, all of the items that you just listed are actually within a surcharge that's called the renewable energy surcharge. So we could start outside of that and we could go back to 1935 when something very interesting happened in Germany and in the States. It so happens that in 1935, each of these countries made a decision in the power sector, the opposite decision. And in retrospect, which decision was better? The decision that Germany reached was, we're going to add a surcharge to the retail rate for electricity. 
and we're going to use that to pay for community things. So we cross-subsidize our public services, the trams we have, the buses, the swimming pools, the public swimming pools. We cross-subsidize them in Germany by consuming electricity. Oh, okay. So this surcharge was originally not about renewable energy at all. It was about all sorts of public works. No, no, sorry. I'm saying those items that you listed are in the renewable energy surcharge. Okay. But before we even get there, we can talk about other things. Okay. 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 So there are other other elements in gotcha. there. And this is a surcharge that's basically just for sort of community services. And it's not much. I think it's like 7% of the retail rate. So it's a couple of cents. But it's an indication of the kind of different philosophy over here. In 1935 in the States, we were going in the same direction or at least talking about it. And then I forget who I was going to say the government came in, but maybe it was an antitrust authority. But someone came in and said, okay, this is illegal. You can't cross-subsidize like that. And in a way, you can look at it and say, well, we have really good public services in Germany, so maybe that was a good idea. At the same time, we're going to reduce, maybe if we reduce electricity consumption, we're going to hurt our swimming pools and public transportation. Right. So it's not safe to do it the way Germany did. It's not worse to do it the way we did in America. It's just we have these two experiments out there. So the renewable energy surcharge, to come back to that one, which makes up, I'd say, about a quarter of the retail rate, we're at something like 6.1 cents right now. And it will probably rise to about 7, 7.5 cents, and then it will decrease. We can talk about why in a minute. But out of that roughly 6 cents, about 2.5 are the actual feed-in tariff payments the feed-in tariff is the policy right. name. So about two and a half cents goes to cover the roughly 23 billion euros that we spend on renewable electricity. Okay, So you would think 2.5 cents, that's not really that much more than we're spending on the swimming pools and everything else. Mm-hmm. And about half of that okay, is just photovoltaics because Germany built – Writing this book, I saw some of the old data. Germany had something like 45% of global PV installations in around 2006 when PV was so expensive. But we really built it in 2009, 2010, 2011, and 2012. In 2012, we came out with, what was it, something like 25 gigawatts of really expensive PV in the ground. And now the costs have gone from 50 cents to 10 cents per kilowatt hour of solar power. And now we're slowing down. That's a different discussion. But just to give you an idea, we built tens of gigawatts of PV when it cost between 50 and 30 cents. Yeah. And and that's kind of one of the common criticisms that I hear is that Germany just simply overpaid for its solar capacity and should have waited or something like that. Uh, It's maybe a bit more complicated than that. We know now that we did overpay. And I was actually working within the PV sector, and I saw the infighting during that discussion. I suspected very strongly, actually, that we were overpaying because some of the experts over here presented some really strong evidence. You know, they did the math, and the other companies just said, well, that's not our numbers, right? Mm. And it was essentially a number of companies and planners just trying to keep the high revenue flows going. So, yes, we did overpay for a while, but the reason we overpaid was that we did not realize how fast we would bring the cost down. So we had a mechanism in place that said every year the price for electricity from new systems 
will go down by 5%. So we had this 5% reduction built in. What we didn't know was that we were going to be doing a 20% reduction every year for a couple of years there. Hmm. And so the government had to keep running after the sector and adjusting things. And while the politicians did that, there was just a lot of infighting and it got very nasty. And that's probably why feed-in tariffs in Germany right now, the government's kind of keen on moving beyond them. And I think they got their fingers burned because every year or two, they had to be out in the spotlight saying, we have to reduce rates, but it was unpopular with so many people. Right. And they probably didn't know themselves how far to reduce them. Right, right. right. And I think you've actually explained that for some new solar systems, it doesn't even pay for them to go after the feed-in tariff. It's better for them to just operate on the spot market. In the meantime, we have gotten feed-in tariffs to a point where the return seems to be 0%, yeah. which is not necessarily a real problem, at least not for people who can offset consumption in some way. If you're going to build something out in the field and you don't have any kind of power meter to offset, that's a different story. But if you have a, a home or a business or a bigger company even, you've got some power consumption that you could offset. And with the retail rates at something like 25 to 28 cents and solar from a roof now, from a new solar uh, array can produce below 12 cents in Germany, 12 cents, maybe 10 cents. There's obviously a huge space there for a gigantic profit margin. But Germany has a policy that's not net metering. Net metering just means your meter goes back and forth. If you produce more than you consume, you ship it out to the grid and your meter runs backwards. In Germany, it's called direct consumption or own consumption in German. If you want this own consumption policy, then your electricity cannot touch the grid. So you have to either consume it immediately or you store it before it touches the grid. You don't export it. Hmm. So if you export it, you get this feed-in tariff that really doesn't give you much of a return, if any at all. But if you can consume it directly, then you're consuming at 12 cents instead of maybe 25, which uh -huh. is fantastic, right? And you have some space there for storage. You have like 12 cents to spend on storage. Right. And so this is a huge market that may crop up any year now. And I keep investigating this and writing about why it's not getting going. And the last sort of stab that I took at it was somebody saying, probably it's because everybody thinks that Tesla is going to bring down the cost of batteries so much right. that we might as well wait another year. So I was incorrect earlier in saying that instead of the fit, solar producer or a home or a business could participate in the spot market. It's not that. It's that they're actually going more toward the so-called grid defection model. Exactly. It's grid defection. Yeah. And it's something that we should be very, just for the record, I have been against this policy of, of own consumption since it was rolled out. And I opened up Renewables International with a six-part series basically saying, this is terrible. Don't do it. And it's become known as grid defection now. And I'm happy with the term because the grid has been the great enabler of everything over here in Germany. And I do not see the case for everybody leaving it just because it pays for itself for a particular household doesn't mean that the grid is bad or that we don't need it in the future. Right, exactly. If you're going to undermine it, you're actually ultimately undermining the entire case for the transition. The entire project, yeah. yeah. Let me say one more thing about the spot markets because that's kind of interesting as well. Another term that everyone's talking about now is the cannibalization effect. So in fact, solar and wind will not work on the spot market. 
because when large amounts are produced, it automatically brings down the spot market price. And so wind and solar always undercut themselves. And so when you have large amounts to sell, you will by definition have low prices and you have no business model in that case. Right. Yeah, that's actually something that we've talked about in a previous episode here, at least in the U.S. context. And, you know, that points towards certain sorts of market reforms that might be necessary in the future as you have higher and higher percentages of, of renewable energy. You want to avoid having renewables ultimately cannibalize their own market. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So given all these price effects of these higher amounts of renewables, what is the long-term outlook for Germany's power prices. And, you know, I think sometimes it might be helpful even to think of that relative to other countries that aren't transitioning to renewables. I mean, ultimately, is it going to be cheaper to have this renewable capacity on the grid because essentially the fuel is free or after you pay a lot up front for it, as Germany has done? Or how would you look at the long-term outlook for power prices? Well, anyone, as I said, half of the power prices over here, half of the renewable energy surcharge that's related to the cost of feed-in tariffs is just PV. And so any country that decides now to start developing renewables faces a completely different world of prices. Mm -hmm. In Germany, because we have this legacy of the expensive PV mostly, these feed-in tariffs are guaranteed for 20 years. And so the systems from about 2012 will fall out of the system at the end of 2031. And so you could just say as a, as a ballpark figure that we have these surging costs now. They will flatten out, and by about 2030, we will have our golden years where these systems will no longer be eligible for feed-in tariffs at all, and they will begin to drop out of that. This will be huge chunks of the renewable surcharge disappearing. Yet these arrays will still be installed and it's very likely that the average homeowner is not going to go up on their roof and take it down and put something new up if anything they might say okay let's maybe build some more storage or something get another battery pack but this electricity will still be generated it will either be sold to the grid at extremely low prices because it cannibalizes itself or homeowners and roof owners will say, you know what, that one cent per kilowatt hour is not worth it. I'm going to invest in battery storage or whatever we have by then. And then this will disappear and it will look like efficiency. Hmm. So you, the demand will go back. Right. And the effect is going to be very significant. As I said, we had something like, I think it was 22.5 gigawatts installed. I think I said 25 a minute ago. But we had something around there at the end of 2012 just for PV. So we're gonna have something like 22 gigawatts of PV in 2032. It's gonna still be connected and it will disappear from this payment scheme but be connected to the grid generating electricity at a slightly lower level, right? The performance warranties are for something like 80 or 85% right. after 25 years. So you're gonna have this just as a ballpark figure, this solar electricity will be coming in every day, every sunny day at about 12 gigawatts. We have about 60 to 70 on a normal day, and we're going to get 12 for free in 20 years. Right. 
So the renewable energy cost portion of the renewable energy surcharge will fall out. But what about all those other little elements of the surcharge? Well, we have various surcharges, and there are going to be various movements as well. I think what's going to happen in the long term is you're going to see the wholesale market become relatively irrelevant. I think that the writing is already on the wall. If you look at futures trading, we've got the lowest prices ever. We're touching three cents in uh, looking at the end of the decade. There's no money to be made in power generation. Hmm. The money will be made in, uh, and we need to create these markets. And, and again, I'm working on a, there's a project over here right now. I can't tell you who it is because I've signed a confidentiality uh, form, but this is looking into creating a kind of regional price market for ancillary services. Uh, that's the perfect answer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and in this project, they write, the Americans already have this. Not everywhere, but like California has it. Well, we're getting there. You're getting there. Well, and again, we over here in Germany, they're looking at some of the more progressive ideas in the States and saying, we're going to need to do what the Americans are doing. And so I think the wholesale market's going to be there in some way, shape or form, but it will be it will be as a price signal, but it will not be as a revenue generator. And I think the real revenue is going to come from an ancillary service market, one that probably needs to be regional. You know, again, going back to the beginning of the podcast, the power shortfall is the concern more in the South. And that's just a good sign that amid all this talk about the EU saying we need interconnectors, we need to have an energy union and making this one huge power market. All right. This is where the experts want to go. Right. And below that, we've got this discussion about regional. And so we're going to have maybe an energy union and one power market, but it has to consist of these little nodules of regional hmm. ancillary markets with their own price signals. Really interesting. Interesting. Well, a point that I've often made is that the destination here is far from clear. And Nobody knows how this is all going to work out. Uh, it's an evolutionary process. These questions are hard. Market reforms will be necessary, and we just kind of have to move in that direction and see what, what can work, both in terms of the long-term goal, as you were saying, you know, start with 2050 and work back, but also in terms of what's the next step that we need to take tomorrow while still maintaining reliability. Really interesting. So on one final point, and moving beyond sort of grid power, a big part of the transition plan, as you pointed out, was improving the efficiency in the building sector. Mm -hmm. And Germany has implemented some really interesting incentives that allow residents to obtain low interest financing for efficiency improvements and that kind of thing. And I don't think most U.S. listeners certainly have even heard of this stuff. Can you briefly describe those programs and how they work? Well, they've been of moderate success. I wouldn't necessarily praise what we have over here too much. What we're trying to do is get what's called the building renovation rate up from 1% to 3% ideally. And right now we're shooting for 2%. That means that at 2%, you would have 2% of your buildings sort of completely renovated, completely weatherized every year. Okay. If you do 2% every 50 years, you've got a new building stock. Right. That's not fast enough. And we're at 1%. Hmm. In the States, you might build a, an A-frame house and you're thinking it'll be there for 30 years. That's not quite the way it works over here. They put up buildings that are supposed to just sort of stand there forever. Well, you have a lot of buildings that have been standing there for 400 years. Some buildings, yes. But even the ones that we're putting up now, they're solid construction. 
And these things are built to be there for certainly generations, potentially even longer. And so it's very important to get those done right. The incentives that we've had, to come back to your question, they have basically it's, it's, it's focused on low interest loans. So we've provided certain incentives for people to do certain things. We have energy audits that are subsidized. And so someone can come by and tell you whether the next step should be new windows or whether it should be insulation or whether actually both at the same time would really pay for itself quickly. And just the information is very important because, you know, homeowners don't necessarily know when they look around the house. They might look at their bills and say, you know, I'm really paying a lot for heat, but they might not know whether the next step should be windows or insulating the roof or Mm -hmm. something else. And then again, what their options are, right? So what kind of insulation and, and how much? And so just the information and the low interest loans together, they've been good steps, but really we have the problem that people, they'll buy a house over here probably much later than we do in the States. So maybe when you're 40, you get your first house, 45 even. And so it needs to be renovated near retirement age. And that might be a time when everybody just wants to ride it out. And so we've got a social issue that we need to overcome. We need to find some way of encouraging people to have a major project right when really what they want to do is just relax. And if you tell these people who are 65, this investment will pay for itself over the next 20 years, that's not a good selling point. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But that aside, just in terms of the mechanics of the program, I mean, who's ultimately paying for these incentives? Well, we have a bank over here called the KFW Bank. It was founded after World War II to funnel Marshall Fund money. And it has stayed there as a kind of infrastructure building bank and a sort of good ideas bank, right? Mm, So anything that maybe the market might not do on its own, we'll give low interest loans for that. And so having this central KFW bank has been a blessing in so many ways. I mean, they, they are criticized. Sometimes they invest in a coal plant or something somewhere in a developing country, for instance. And so you'll see some bad news items if you Google KFW bank. But they have been so helpful in sort of rolling out renewables and efficiency in Germany. I can see how countries that don't have that kind of central bank that gives you low interest loans for good ideas and good projects could really hamper everything. So it's ultimately federal funding. It's public funding through this KFW bank. It's tax money. Tax money, yeah. It's governmental money. In the meantime, it's development aid to foreign countries is also funneled partly through the KFW. But when it's used domestically, it's essentially just tax money. And so it's the government giving low interest loans. But there have also been studies, and I believe we mentioned this. I don't have the number by heart. But if you look on the Energy Transition website, you may be able to find it. I think they have calculated that for every dollar that they give in a low interest loan for an efficiency project, they generate several dollars in tax revenue coming back. And so you can't even, you know, argue against it and say, we're wasting tax money. No, we're generating. Right. It's got great macroeconomic effects. So how low interest are these loans we're talking about? I don't know. I know that we're looking at something like below 1%, possibly, but certainly below 2%. Wow. 
Interesting. Is that good? We have very low interest rates here now anyway because of the financial crisis, but 10 years ago that was impressive when you would have had 5%. I don't know of any sort of loan that a homeowner could get in the United States for less than 2% interest. So yeah, I think that's pretty good. Okay. Well, I actually am looking to build right now and I can tell you that the normal rate over here is 1.8. Hmm. Well, that certainly helps. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I made your day. <laughs> <laughs> well, Craig, look, I'm going to let you go. It's been just fascinating. I always enjoy talking to you about this stuff, and I'm sure that our listeners learned a lot of things today. There's so much more to discuss because the Energy Venda is just such a an amazing example, both of what works and what might not work and what sort of challenges the future holds. So I really appreciate you being on the program today. It was a pleasure. All right. We'll have you back. Thank you, Craig. Okay. Thanks. All right. That was Craig Morris, a PP chef on Twitter, who's the editor of Renewables International and the lead author of the Energy Transition website in Germany. I hope that this discussion has helped folks to understand a bit more about the truly nuanced and complex situation in Germany with their energy transition plan, how the markets are having to adapt, how the grid management issues are being dealt with and how really the long-term project of energy transition is something that has to evolve over time with new data, new tools, new approaches, and sort of a constant adjustment of the way that the markets work. So I hope that folks now have a much better idea of how it's actually working over there, what the real issues are. And the next time that you might read an article that's just sort of some rabid anti-energy vendor take on things, that you'll go have a look at his website and look up the data and see what the real facts are. The future's in the air Can feel it everywhere I'm blowing with the wind of change And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Bloomberg reports that the future for LNG exports is suddenly in doubt, with the Brookings Institution and the ratings agency Fitch saying that half the 38 planned U.S. export terminals may never be built, and the consulting firm IHS saying that the world only needs five more terminals, not the 90 that have been in the works. Weakening Asian economies, the restarting of some nuclear plants in Japan, and the ongoing glut of shale gas in the U.S. and Canada will all conspire to reduce demand for LNG exports in this new view, while seven new export projects in Australia will more than satisfy Asian demand and worsen the economics for more expensive gas exports from the U.S. Spot LNG prices in Asia have fallen from nearly $20 per million BTU in early 2014 to less than $7 today, and are now actually below the equivalent cost of U.S. spot gas plus the estimated $5 cost for liquefaction and shipping. In other words, U.S. gas exports cannot compete anymore with other LNG supplies in Asia. And demand growth has been weak. Four years ago, IEA forecast that global gas demand would increase by 16% by 2016. Now it's saying that growth will only be 11%. And Bank of America says the global demand only grew 0.4% in 2014 due to subdued demand from Asian economies. Now there are several good news and bad news implications of all this. 
It could be bad news for the climate, casting doubt on the many forecasts for natural gas being a significant bridge fuel in the battle against climate change, especially where it's needed most, to displace the voracious demand for coal in Asia. But it's also good news for the climate in that energy demand as a whole is likely to be weaker than expected in the future, and therefore carbon emissions will be lower. And slower than expected shale gas development in the U.S. and Canada, due to the weaker outlook for LNG exports, would also be good news for those worried about fugitive methane emissions from the projects. But it could also mean a tougher road for renewables in Asia if gas remains so much cheaper than expected. Or maybe not. Item two. China's state media says that the nation will likely add 23 gigawatts of new solar capacity this year, which is 30% more than its earlier 18 gigawatt target for the year. Now note, even if it had built only 18 gigawatts of solar this year, that would still have been more than the entire existing U.S. solar capacity in the United States. Like its burgeoning wind capacity, not all of this new capacity in China is yet able to connect to the grid, as grid development has lagged behind the generation projects. But all of these new solar projects are required to connect to the grid by June of next year, so it's definitely coming. In addition to its astonishingly rapid deployment of solar, China is also the world's top producer of power from hydro and from wind. And President Xi Jinping announced last month that China would begin the world's largest national cap-and-trade program by 2017, saying, We should firmly pursue green, low-carbon, circular, and sustainable development, and that China will shoulder its share of responsibility. So perhaps the outlook for low natural gas prices isn't that much of a factor in China's race to combat climate change with renewables. And the long-standing argument used by American politicians who are beholden to the fossil fuel industry and resistant to action on climate change, that Western efforts to reduce emissions would be fruitless as long as China kept burning more coal, has now been rendered hollow. There really isn't any excuse left for the U.S. not to step up and do its part to reduce carbon emissions. Item 3. U.S. crude oil futures finally climbed back over $50 last week, a level not seen since prices fell hard in early July. Goldman Sachs analyst Jeffrey Curry was quick to assert that this rally wouldn't last, as global oversupply continues to be sustained by producers outside the U.S. One month ago, Goldman's commodities team said that crude could fall as low as $20 a barrel and stay depressed for another 15 years. An absurd forecast when one considers that study after study have shown that the marginal cost of production for new projects globally is at least $80 a barrel. Now, I could comment at length on Goldman's historical forecasting accuracy, but I won't. Instead, I'll just say that their analysts have an excellent track record of driving by the rearview mirror. In my experience, it's precisely when traders begin to broadly believe a big thesis like lower for longer that the market whips around and sends prices higher again. The market can stay irrational longer than you can stay liquid, as the old saw goes, but the real marginal cost of production isn't something that can be swept under the rug forever. We've managed to stay below the actual cost of production for about a year now, mainly by liquidating foreign reserve accounts in OPEC and accumulating vast amounts of junk debt in the U.S. exploration and production sector. But those are games with very limited lifespan. I expect oil prices to be firmly back on their way toward that $80 target by the end of this year, especially as the recognition continues to spread that fresh debt issuance for U.S. frackers has all but dried up, and that U.S. production is now more than half a million barrels a day below its June high, and that it will be very difficult, given the underlying decline rates of shale wells, to return U.S. production back to a growth trajectory. So I hope you've all enjoyed this summer of unexpectedly low gasoline prices. I know I have. Because it's over now. 
and those prices won't be coming back unless the dread deflationary vortex is indeed gaining speed. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.